0: Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: So we have another guest classic episode today, guys. This is, this is something that really stuck with me, and I think it sticks with all of us. You know, you hear so much about serial killers. They're often romanticized here in the U.S. in fiction and in documentaries. Uh, but how many serial killers are there? How many have yet to be apprehended? That's the question we asked today, and it goes to some disturbing places, you know?
7: Yeah, the first thing you have to do to be able to catch a serial killer is to identify the work of a serial killer, which is sometimes uh, not as easy as television and film may make you think it is.
1: That's right. I mean, we are really lucky to live in an era where a lot of film and television producers do kind of understand this a little more than they may have in the past, and we have series like Mindhunter that does do a pretty damn good job of getting inside this whole process. Uh, So in this episode, we're joined by Christian Sager, um, excellent comic book writer and uh, former host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, in general, all around good dude, to talk about some cold cases um, and some of the inherent challenges in Uh, tracking serial killers and figuring out if, in fact, they've been caught at all. And the spooky thing is, folks, we don't know who is
7: listening to this episode right
8: now. You'll see
7: what we mean. And quick note here, you may hear a few names or individual killers in this episode that have been apprehended since we created this episode in October of 2015.
1: From UFOs to ghosts and government cover-ups, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now, or learn the stuff they don't want you to know.
8: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. If you've heard the intro music, hopefully that means you're in the right place. I'm Ben. And I'm Noel. (laughs) and most importantly you're you and you're here which makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Now this episode has a lot of stuff going on and hopefully you'll find it as interesting as we do but before we get to the the dark part of today's topic uh we have some very big news uh ladies and gentlemen Matt Frederick has
7: returned. That is right. I have returned, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Welcome, <laughs> welcome, Matt Frederick. <laughs> well, thank you, Nosef.
7: No, I'm, 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 it is
8: you, though, right? You're not a vampire dressed up as our friend Matt.
7: I, I cannot confirm nor deny that. Are you a replicant? Mayhap. That is I, perhaps. I am so sleep deprived at this moment. Seriously, two and a half hours last night, and I tried very hard to get some sleep last night, mm-hmm. and it did not happen. So. Perhaps. This is an inkling of Matt Frederick.
8: No, Matt, is that because vampires don't actually sleep at night? Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I'm an armchair everybody. biologist. Or is it because
7: of something else? <laughs> well, it's a little thing we talked about before. You know, babies, mm-hmm. babies, babies everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, they do w- tend to make sounds at odd hours.
7: Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. And I have found out that my wife sleeps right through those sounds. And I <laughs> do <laughs> Must be nice, not. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I do not. But I also am terrified to wear earplugs or something just in case something does go wrong or mm-hmm. I need to hear that sound. So at this point, I'm just kind of
1: living with it. You know, it's it's all good though. Do you have one of those newfangled video baby monitors, or are you at that stage yet?
7: Not. We. I have one. Uh It's not a newfangled one. It's literally a security camera that can broadcast essentially over Bluetooth. A couple other things. So I'm gonna use that. What's the frequency so I can watch your baby? You know what? Christian Sager guest on our show today. I'm going to get to that later. I'm not even going to address that comment right now.
8: No, Chris, you raise is, is, <laughs> like a good point. Because when you say security camera, it does sound like uh you think your baby's going to steal or something. Oh, yeah. Well, it's I mean, different.
7: you know, look. I'm not gonna say anything against mr I'm just gonna say his name I don't know do I have I said his name before on here I don't know that you've spoken his name I don't yeah. think I'm going to okay I have uh, a son his I'm name just like he mr. exists yeah. Mr 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 mist <laughs> <laughs> which is a mosquito service in Atlanta I don't know if Mini anybody mat. knows that no. oh mr. I get it
8: like a like a mist a pesticide mm-hmm. mist
7: yep nice. there
8: we go uh we have also as you could tell uh buried the lead a little bit because we do have a fourth person on the show show today who just got introduced to you um, but <laughs> we're going to we're going to do it again cuz we love introducing this guy you'll remember him from some earlier episodes that we have done uh, our our friend and colleague uh co-host of stuff to blow your mind writer of numerous things here at how stuff works one more time for Christian Sager. Oh, thank Hello. you. I'm so
2: happy to be here on this momentous occasion, and I didn't realize that in the stuff they don't want you to know that they were Nazi vampires. Sometimes? Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Nazi, Nazi replicant vampires. Oh, Nazi, right. oh, okay. Nazi replicant vampires. Right. Well, I'm glad to be here to learn this, the deep, dark secret.
1: There's, this, there's another lead you're bearing slightly, is that with you know, no explanation, last week's episode was... Matt was back. Oh, that's <laughs> a very true. good point. He came back it was a John Titer moment. We didn't yeah. discuss it. Um and just you know, just to shed a little light on that, mm. that was an episode we'd recorded right before Matt took his leave. Mm-hmm. And um it's uh, the first in this uh this series that we're working on, so mm, made sense so behind to drop the that the scenes. one. Uh
7: one of the last things I want to say before we get into the meat of this mm. is a huge thank you to super producer Noel Brownsif mm. for taking over and just being awesome Thanks, on the man. show. Thank you Ben for basically helming everything while I was gone from the videos to, you know, the podcast to everything. Thank you Christian Aww. for making sure the house house stuff works headquarters, you know, is in order. I, I know I know you did everything I
2: could.
8: Every single thing. <laughs> yeah, everything. Everything's
7: fine. Did and, you um
8: uh, did- you realize it sounds a little like an award speech, right? Uh, okay, I so I also want academy. to thank, thank,
2: uh, no, academy, you know. I also want to thank Mr. Mister.
7: Uh, Mr. Mister for having those signs that I noticed and stayed in my head until I <laughs> came on this podcast. So, I'm, uh, also Rockstar yeah. Energy Drink for keeping me awake uh, when I have to be. Thank you. Oh, a little you.
2: native advertising. There yeah, go. there what you do? go. You like that? Zing. Give me some free energy drinks, please. <laughs> That's where the money comes from people. <laughs> Stuff they don't want you to know. Right. That's right. The uh, vampire Nazis drink Monster Energy drinks. Mm -hmm. It's the (laughs)
8: only thing. It's replaced blood. Uh, (gasps) Not just in Matt's system, not just in Matt's circulatory system, but in uh, that of Nazi vampire, Nazi replicant vampire, sorry, around the world. So, guys, we're uh, we're several minutes into the beginning of our show. (laughs) Off the rails. It's good that we started out with uh, some levity and some friends returning and well-met because Today we are we are going into a dark subject. We're returning to one you will recall listeners that uh if you're listening to these podcasts in order previously we started the um can we get like a previously? Who's got a good voice? Previously on stuff, stuff they, they don't, don't want you to, to know. know. Boy, that was that was great you guys. Uh so previously we did the uh we did this Topic earlier that people had asked us about, you had asked us over Twitter, Facebook, YouTube comments to cover the so-called highway of tears. And while we were looking into that in this series with, uh, with another friend of the show, uh, Scott Benjamin, Christian, we started talking off air about other disturbing things related to serial killers. And we found, and we found, um, What's, I, I guess, worse than disturbing? We
2: found some horrifying things about serial killers on the loose. Yeah, I'll put it this way. So uh, we've also done a video about this mm-hmm. subject, which I'm assuming is going to be live by the time this podcast is released. It will correspond, yes. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. So uh, you can go watch that video. And here's a little behind the scenes for you. Uh, we went, we're went very jocular, as you've just heard. Uh, we went in to go shoot that episode and just could not muster... The humor that we normally have, because it's a very dark topic, and it yeah. really kind of brought brought the tone down. Uh, so that uh, the video, the video is like the the dark sister to this podcast, probably. Mm-hmm. But well, I, yeah. I, I think too. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of the same subject sure. today. Uh, I also think that it's kind of fascinating, though, in its own way, in that uh, true crime and serial killers, and especially uncaught serial killers, mm-hmm. the stories behind them. I think. Are uh, they? They encapsulate something about American culture. I don't. I can't put my finger on it. But they encapsulate something about it. Uh, these like moments in time that are kind of perfect. Uh, have you ever read um Norman Mailer's The Executioner's Song before? Oh wow! Yeah, a long time ago. No, That's fantastic. Yeah, it's just this great uh, true crime book. It's mm. it's nonfiction, actually. I'm sure he you know put some hyperbole in there. Sure, it's a huge book. But uh, about a, a guy responsible for murder on death row and uh, just a great way to capture kind of this particular moment uh, in American history. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way about some of these stories that we're about to tell today, uh, although they're not only American, are they?
8: Right. Absolutely. We have also we've also seen similar things such as uh, the devil in the white city. Right. Agents yeah, that's another one. It's the welfare. Mm-hmm. The way that John Wayne Gacy fundamentally altered the Western perception of clowns. Right. And right. is probably responsible for a lot of chlor- uh, chlorophobia, I think is the word for it. Chlorophobia.
2: it so I have an aside that will maybe help us out mm. here. I have a friend who is currently staying in a clown motel in the desert. I believe it's in Arizona for one month. What is a clown motel? Yeah, it's a the clown-themed motel in the middle of the desert. He raised money on Kickstarter to do this. Uh, and <laughs> okay. And he's staying there and writing about his, his experiences. And uh, <sighs> part of the Kickstarter, the rewards, was that he has to dress up like a clown every once in a while in his room and just sit there. I mean, we've oh all done God. that, yeah. right, guys? Yeah, sure. Uh
7: I have one last aside on this. Sure. (laughs) Um my wife showed me a picture two weeks ago of one of her best friends who was hanging out a bar because she was moving away from Atlanta. Okay. And it was like their goodbye party. Yeah. There was a gentleman drinking alone at the bar, and all that he wanted to talk about was this picture he had on his cell phone. The, an old picture that he taken uh, a picture of mm-hmm. of him as a kid and John Wayne Gacy at his birthday party
2: making balloons oh, for him. I remember you telling me about this or maybe you shared it. I, th- I don't I think she maybe shared it. I don't it, I don't that's know. That's what it was. It was Chandler. Okay. Uh our coworker. Yeah, he, Chandler, Chandler, he was, was there. He was there and he told me about it. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> Very strange.
8: And it's it's also strange when you consider that what we're going to examine now will be the likelihood of a serial killer, uncaught, running free range, somewhere in your town, somewhere in your neck of the woods. And we'll, we'll take a look at the statistics and the facts here. Uh, but it, you've probably had this thought before, ladies and gentlemen, guys, Noel, Matt, Christian. Have you ever been in a crowd and thought, you know, I wonder what the worst thing someone has done in this crowd is? Because it's true that it's more difficult to get away with murder nowadays than it was, you know, when our parents or grandparents were our age. But it's a, it's a paranoid thought. The good news is that serial killers, as we're going to find, are relatively rare birds Hmm. in the great aviary of crime, right? But, uh, what, so first off, like, Matt, what is a serial killer?
7: A serial killer, as defined by the FBI's crime classification manual, it essentially says that they, they have to kill in several places, so at least three places, uh, during different events, and there has to be a cooling off period in between these deaths, these killings. Okay. And that's, that's a commonly accepted definition. At least, yes. That is when the FBI says, Hey, we're going to define this crime as this. Then generally I go, Okay,
2: FBI. You know what? Something that I hadn't thought about until now. And I think could bear some further mm. uh, research from maybe another episode is that uh, the FBI is defining that serial killer feels like a very American phenomenon, right? I'm sure yeah. it's not. I'm mm. sure it happens in plenty of other uh, countries, but uh, I wonder how it's defined. In other cultures, mm-hmm. and, um, especially since we're going by that classification,
8: right? Yeah, and the FBI will you'll often hear it called uh, serial murdering or something. There mm-hmm. were there were some closely related types of homicide that we looked at in the video, right? That you have to distinguish yeah. between.
2: Yeah, well, right, you've got uh, mass murders, and those are basically the reason why they're different from serial killers is because that's when you have four or more victims, but it's in one specific time and location, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, unfortunately, this is something we're familiar with recently because we've had kind of a spat of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, then there's also spree killers, which are a little different. Uh, and the FBI refers to these as uh, killers that tend to keep killing over a period of days or weeks, but they're in different locations. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't have the cooling off period. So unlike a serial killer who maybe, you know. Uh, take like a month between killing or or maybe longer, These there there isn't that kind of pattern. Mm -hmm. Right.
8: These people may continue killing until they are stopped, literally. Uh, There's another thing here that we could add while we're defining what makes a serial killer, and that is there's often some sort of psychological aspect to the crime, some sort of exploration of an emotional trauma, for instance right. uh some sort of ritualized thing that is based on a um is based on a pre-existing uh mental condition right so people are reliving certain moments or uh people are responding to a pathological problem with a parent in childhood or something like that but that's this. This is what we have when we're when we're loosely defining these things. And the phrase serial killer f- comes to us first from a book called The Complete Detective, published in 1950. But going back to this conversation about serial killers and uh, the the very American nature of it, which mm-hmm. I agree, um, many many cultures across the world associate serial killers with. The U.S. and the other, the only other big one being Jack the Ripper.
2: Oh, right. Um, yeah.
8: but the, uh, the, the idea, the actual idea of a serial murderer comes, uh, was coined in 1931 in Germany to a, in reference to a killer named Peter Curtin.
7: Hmm. You know, I, I think the media in the U.S. has certainly distorted yeah maybe our view of what sure. what a serial killer looks like, what they sound like. Mm-hmm. I what agree the, you know how they function, what their problems are psychologically. And uh, one of the big things that I noticed the FBI kept reiterating is that serial killers don't all look a same way. They do not all follow a pattern. There are so many things that you have to look at when you're trying to profile somebody like this. Yeah,
2: exactly. I think that that is the 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 thing that's actually scary about thinking about uncaught serial killers. Right? Is the idea that in our entertainment that we almost fetishize this serial killer. Entertainment culture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, think about like shows like Hannibal, right? So the sure. whole show is about uh, one profiler who's profiling all these different serial killers that just happen to all happen around Baltimore, Maryland, right? right. I love that show, but uh, it, it does, you know, stuff like that, and a lot of police procedurals do sort of not glorify, but um, create a somewhat fantasy version of what this is like, mm-hmm. and there and there's always an assumption that there's like. One specific incident like that grandma wasn't nice to them when they right. were ten or yeah. uh you know what what's Hannibal Lecter's uh incident? I, uh, something with his sister, right? Well the, this this okay, spoiler alert
8: officially, I don't know if we want to do a sound cue for that or something, but he was forced to uh participate in acts of cannibalism oh, as okay. a child. Okay. Uh and that, Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. Right. I, I think that's an excellent point because it's one of the myths and there is this mythology about serial killers. Uh, but we have to be clear. A serial murderer doesn't necessarily have to have some physiological injury or a, a neurological injury to their brain. Uh, like Otis Tool, right? Mm. Um, it, it can instead be a, um, a lack of empathy could be part of the ingredients. There, there have been, of course, you know, there's that famous triumvirate, uh, that was proposed earlier that suggested a relationship between, or suggested there were three red flags to see someone come growing up to become, I think, a, a pyromaniac, a sexual deviant, and possibly a serial killer, which were, uh, bedwetting to late age, mm-hmm. torturing animals. Yeah. And
2: what was the third one? Torturing Animals is the one I always remember. I don't know what the
3: third yeah. one
2: is. Uh, the, oh, uh Fire. Was it arson? Driving a Honda Odyssey? was it driving
8: Oh, Christian. That's scary. Don't say that. I'm not allowed to <laughs> comment on that, actually. but But here's our point. We have a hard time as a society, at least in the States, profiling what a serial killer is because they can be very different. We're not looking at... We're not looking at the root of a perpetrator or a criminal. We're looking at the work that they have done. We're looking at the crimes they have committed. And that makes it very, very difficult to, to find the source of it, which is why one of the biggest myths about serial killers that they get caught all the time.
2: Right, yeah. It, mm. and, and, I, and I think that, too, like, that's part of the myth that, that entertainment spreads as well. Is, right. Uh, and no offense to any criminal profilers out there, but I don't think that it works like it does on TV, right? Like Where, yeah, they, they so want easy. to get caught, kind of, so they play a little <laughs> exactly. game. And they all have, like, like a little uh, theme about how they mm-hmm. do it, you know? Like, I, as we're about to find out, that's the, the MO isn't always the same, first right, of all. Right, Um, But... But, but also just that like it's not so easy to nail down exactly what kind of person this is so that Mm -hmm. you can narrow down the field of potential uh, suspects.
8: Right. So just, uh, just as a warning for everyone who is listening to the podcast, we are entering the part of the show where we're going to talk about some grisly details and we, we're doing this, um, we're doing this because this is true crime, which is something that interests all of us associate with this. Uh this is also an opportunity to shed some light on some things that are misportrayed. And also these are real monsters. These are the closest thing to genuine monsters, you know, and, and they're even there's a great folkloric Supposition or theory that reports of werewolves and stuff were really these older cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to understand Mm -hmm. serial killers. Yeah, why would someone do this? Right. So we have several examples of serial killers who are currently not apprehended.
3: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season... Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
9: Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace.
0: Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: I used to have so many men. How this beguiling
4: woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications.
6: She had a Harvard plaque
7: So let's go ahead and get started with number one, and I'm going to throw this to Christian because I know you did a lot of research on this fellow.
2: Yeah, I um,
7: Or this person.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's another thing, right, is that it's often assumed that uh, serial killers are male. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, this particular one is known as the New Bedford Highway Killer, and I chose uh, to look deeper into this one because I'm from the Boston area Mm -hmm. and New Bedford's pretty close to Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and one of my good friends grew up there actually, and I spent some time there. So, uh, I had a bit of an idea of the locale in my head when I was reading this. It wasn't so, it wasn't just like reading text in, sure. in research, you know what I mean? Like I had an idea of, of what the culture was like there. Um, so in 1988, uh, somewhere between 9 and 11 women, they don't know if all of them were victims of this particular killer were murdered uh between April and September in New Bedford. And if you're not familiar, New Bedford is the town uh where Herman Melville set Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Um so it's a uh seaside town in Massachusetts. Uh it used to have a strong uh fishing culture mm-hmm. uh industry and it uh fell on hard times. Uh so all of these bodies were dumped by the side of various highways leading outside of New Bedford. I-95, uh Route 140 and Route 6. Uh, and all of these women were uh thought of as sex workers, uh and they all were thought of as having drug problems Now, I will say like in some of the research, there were parents of these victims who disputed that okay uh, and and yeah I, and I was telling you guys off air uh that my my buddy who grew up in this town said you know i'm I'm not all that surprised there's like a particular type." of person who, uh, like hangs out downtown and it, they're just assumed to be, uh, involved in drugs or the sex trade or something like that. And they're just largely ignored by the rest of the community.
9: Okay. So,
2: so he wasn't all that surprised that they were sort of labeled that way. Uh, and it's easy, I think, for, uh, that, that idea to sort of fall through the cracks too, mm-hmm. right? And say like, uh, you just slap that on and say, well, of course that's why they got killed.
8: Right. And then they would, and then it's also from the killer's perspective less likely to draw attention.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the thing that was really interesting about the actual finding of the bodies mm-hmm. is that, I mean, this New Bedford is a fairly populated area. Uh, most of these bodies were badly decayed and already exposed to animals and the elements by the time they were found. And we're talking about on the side of the highway, not like, in the forest, you know, okay. um, so the problem here was that there was a lack of physical evidence for the police to really work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just had these bodies and they didn't really have, you, you know, I mean, they'd, they'd been exposed for, for quite some time. So there there wasn't a lot to work with there. So what went on was in nineteen nine. Uh, sorry. In 1988, like I said, New Bedford was on hard times. Uh, in Massachusetts, it's generally acknowledged as kind of, you know, being a little bit shady. It's a place where you can get uh, coke and heroin. Uh, and it was regarded, you know, as having a bit of a heroin problem. There was a local clinic there at the time that estimated that it was treating at least 400 heroin addicts a day. Jesus Christ. So that's second to Boston in the state. Um, uh, so... You know, again, like to, that helps paint a picture, but it also gives you an idea of sort of like why the police, I think, gravitated to this idea of just like, OK, so uh, they're sex workers and they're drug addicts. So mm-hmm. that's how they're getting nabbed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the other problem here is that many of the original investigators that were involved either have retired or moved away. Or they've, like, moved up the ranks in the Massachusetts police force, and they're in command positions now that can't be abandoned so that they can follow up on leads on this case.
8: So, like, they're a chief now, and they, yeah. they because of that, they can't go back to decades-old cases.
2: Yeah, and and uh, honestly, like, when I was looking into sort of the broader range of uncaught serial killers, I think that that's a fairly common problem with finding these guys decades later, you know, mm. is that – Uh, Like the other one uh, I'll talk about uh, in this episode had sort of similar thing where, you know, uh, people had retired, moved away, or they Mm -hmm. just, you know, had moved on to bigger positions. And and unfortunately, these cases, Mm -hmm. they're not forgotten. They're still there, but they're not being worked. I guess it's like, you know, from from how entertainment is is terming it, it would be a cold case. Right. Mm -hmm. So this
7: is just me thinking inside the podcast room. And I I know this might be horrible, but that. That fact also kind of makes me a bit suspicious of the law enforcement. And I'm not saying, Uh, you know, as a blanket way of law enforcement in those areas, but I don't know if in the wildest of theories, if someone was involved in the law enforcement, then, you know, if they've moved up and they are no longer involved in such things or perhaps. I know we're able to cover up some actions. You know, yeah, it does make sense in these
8: allegations of potential cover ups, right? It's something, it's a trope we see often. Right. in different films uh, well yeah again is it
7: just media muddying my perception oh uh, right not
8: not necessarily because there are cases such as the atlanta child murders from seventy nine to eighty one which is as listeners know the town where we record this show there was an Atlanta native named Wayne Williams who was uh who was convicted for uh murders it, it, the child murders were grisly and included almost thirty Kids, you know, and at this point, um, there are many people who believe that Wayne Williams was set up or was a murderer who had something attributed. And another way this corruption could happen would be if you consider the story of Henry Lee Lucas, who is suspected. And I hope yeah, you quotes. hear my air quotations here, guys, suspected of hundreds of murders. But there's also a question whether law enforcement was, you know, goading him into confessing things or incentivizing him to get right. that off the books.
2: Yeah. So this is an aside. Uh, but let me let me formulate something here okay. on stuff to blow your mind. We did an episode about the psychology of necrophilia. And uh, wow, Can actually, I just say, wow.
8: <laughs> <laughs>
2: it was an intense episode, but it was also really interesting to dive into the research. And surprisingly, there's a ton of research out there, okay? Uh, and uh, you know, if you want to learn more, we've you know, go listen to that episode of Robert and I talking about pe- people having sex with dead bodies. but uh there is uh in necrophilia under it's understood that as a mental disorder, it's something that develops when people have, the opportunity to take part in it due to their career. So there's like a good chunk of necrophiliacs that are associated with it and only perform those acts because, you know, they work in a hospital or,
1: um, okay. or perhaps they work
2: in a morgue or something right. like that. They come into contact with dead bodies and they have the opportunity. So, all right, establishing that, moving back to where we are on uncaught serial killers, mm-hmm. You know, uh, the police are also in a situation in which they are often working with dead bodies.
8: That's, you know, that's, that's wow. interesting
2: because. I'm not saying police, right. all police are necrophiliacs. Right. I'm of not saying they're that. serial killers. I'm just saying that if there was the potential for a mental disorder, mm-hmm. the career puts them in a situation where they have the opportunity to indulge in such fantasies.
8: Well, that's an opportunity. You know, it reminds me of another uh, statistic I read where apparently, And this was only conducted with men. I think apparently male, uh, shoe store employees have a higher likelihood of a foot fetish. Oh, mm -hmm. which maybe that also speaks to opportunism. But, but of course, you know, we have a, we have a lot of law enforcement that listens to this show and has written into us before about, um, corruption in a police force or in, in a military organization. I think at a certain point, you know, there's a calculation that comes with power and with, um, opportunity and, and people who haven't seen the wire. I know everyone gets tired of people trying to proselytize for the wire, <laughs> but it does, it does provide a very good look at the internal political machinations. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily when we say corruption or cover up, we're not necessarily saying, you know, um, we're not saying that. Scott Benjamin, Lieutenant Scott Benjamin is a police officer just so he can continue poisoning the elderly in ambulances, uh, but we're
2: saying that, right, that's a plot of a bad, like procedural TV show. <laughs> right. But yeah. what, what is Chicago much more
8: B. right. What's much yeah. more possible is that someone wants their record to look good to affect their chances of promotion.
2: Well, yeah. And so get to get yeah, back get, to I, this case, actually, <clears throat> there there's a really good example of 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 that very kind of common everyday uh, political slash. Uh, law enforcement corruption that happened in this case hmm. that led to it uh, being unsolved. So, um, this, the victims again, you know, let me just remind you, there were nine to 11 women. Uh, they were all strangled. That was the only kind of common thing in the MO. Uh, but none of the research that I could find listed any methods of murder beyond that, like whether they were strangled with a rope or with hands or there, there was just not a lot listed. Uh, Which made me think maybe the police never released the details they're Mm. holding on to that information. And again, remember, this happened in a pretty short span of time. So they might not have wanted to release the information.
7: Well, yeah. So anyone calling in wouldn't they would have to have uh, or if anyone had details beyond some of the very,
2: very general, perhaps that's someone you could look at. Exactly. uh, Yeah. And so. So, okay. so they're strangled. They were always found nude, abandoned on the side of the highway Uh, and two of the victims' bodies were never found, so that's why there's that 9 to 11 thing. They don't know what happened to these two particular women. Mm -hmm. But there's some really fascinating leads in this case. Um, again, it's unsolved, Mm -hmm. but, uh, this is what we know. There's a guy named Tony de Grazia in the area who had a history of sexual assault with prostitutes, specifically that, you know, kind of area, uh, Culture of prostitution and drug use that was uh, in in New Bedford at the time. However, there was no evidence to link him to this case, and in fact, he committed suicide in 1990. In a, if I remember correctly from the research, one of his relatives speculated that the suicide was probably brought on by all the attention that was focused on him from this case. Oh. So uh, there, you know, there's no evidence to link him to this. Other than that, he just happened to be a guy who, you know hung around, I guess, with that crowd, but also was a known sort of violent offender. I see. Um the other possible theory, and this is something that I ran by my friend who who lived in New Bedford at the time, is that the killer was also a killer that was known as the Lisbon Ripper that was operating in Portugal in the 1990s uh, and the reason for this is that New Bedford has a very large Portuguese community hmm. so the idea was that uh, this guy could potentially have been flying back and forth between the continents and uh, performing various murders and then you know uh, I guess the cooling down period would be him going to a you know a different location I see. Uh, and that, that's one speculation as to why they were never able to get him. This is the, the deep one. And this is the one that has a little bit of corruption connected to it. The other guy was a, uh, a lawyer in the area named Kenneth Ponte. And he was actually indicted for the murder of one of the women that was involved. Uh, you know, one of, one of the victims. Uh, but his case ended up being dropped due to a lack of evidence. Again, uh, and both the investigators in the case and the surviving family members of the victim say that they don't think it was him. However, here's how things played out with this guy over the course of a couple of years. years. Um, Ponte, the reason why he was a suspect was that he also knew some of the victims, and he actually served as one of their attorneys. Mm. However, he had a personal feud going on with the local district attorney, a guy named Ron Pina, Uh the way that I saw it in, in uh, several reports that I read for this episode, uh, apparently it stemmed from the fact that their mothers were neighbors. And Brilliant. they didn't like each other. And therefore, there's just this kind of family feud that had gone back for a while. So Ron Pina is the district attorney. He gets a special grand jury to indict Ponte, So that's where the indictment came down from. Huh. When Pina loses his election as a special prosecutor they have to drop the charges because there's no evidence. Wow. Again, Ponte, you know, there's no evidence. There's nothing. Mm -hmm, They can't actually connect him to the case. Um, And there were also, like, a lot of reports about jurisdictional issues between the state police, local police, and the feds. So, again, that's another thing that we see in entertainment uh, Mm -hmm. crime stories all the time, right? But as far as the research for this case, that was an actual thing that held up them being able to really nail down evidence in this case.
8: And at this point, the murders remain unsolved. They do. Uh,
2: In fact, Ponte, uh, while having drug problems and being disbarred and was even later caught shoplifting – Uh, you know, they, they were never able to find anything in 2007. The police went back to his old house and dug up the front of the house because they thought there might be something there. Mm -hmm. They didn't find anything. And he died in 2010. So that's all the new Bedford police, Massachusetts state police and the FBI had for this case, you know, at least as far as we know publicly, obviously, you know, as we were saying earlier, they must've had other information that they just didn't release. But, uh, this person remains uncaught, whoever committed these crimes.
8: You know, what's fascinating about that is it shows another, it shows another possibility, uh, that I first ran into with the Zodiac killings. I was not involved, just to go on record there. I'm not old enough. We but, believe you. Thanks, Matt. Uh, so the, uh, the, one of the suppositions was that the murders stopped because, uh, the one of the suspects was incarcerated on a different charge um, and died in prison or died somewhere else as a result. Right. Uh, so it is it is completely possible, you know, that. um Well, obviously not Ponte, probably not.
2: Yeah. I mean, there was like a good 20 years in between yeah. the end of these murders and him passing away where, where nobody was killed in the area. That doesn't mean that you know maybe there was potential evidence that could have connected him to the case, but they they mm-hmm. never found it and let's
8: look at another another one that is uh A little bit different because this person was actually apprehended and did go to jail. But wait, that's not the end of the story. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about Pedro Alonso Lopez, also known as the monster of the Andes. Uh, He is suspected of killing more than 350 uh, girls, primarily in Ecuador, Colombia and Peru. Originally, authorities didn't believe his story. 350 dead children is a lot.
7: Well, yeah, because he was in jail for something else, right? And Mm -hmm. then he was talking to an officer who was, like, dressed up as an inmate Mm -hmm. and basically boasting about all of these girls that he had killed. And he was naming off, like, 100 in Peru, 100 Mm -hmm. over here in Colombia, 100 in Ecuador. And, they, you know, if you hear a grandiose story like that, that is awful – I I don't think you believe him on the first account. Right. And they didn't either until he
8: led police to a mass grave of 53 victims in Ecuador, all girls between 9 to 12 years old. And here's a strange thing. Alonso Lopez, though, was when he was in prison, it wasn't his first brush with a judicial system. When indigenous villagers in Peru caught him trying to abduct children, they buried him up to his neck uh, and were pouring honey on him and preparing to have him die by the, having ants consume him. Yeah. Until a Western white missionary saw him, prevented this horrible pagan practice and said that she would take him to the cops. She drove him to the border and let him go. That was his first that was his first brush with the consequences of these deranged actions. So here's his time frame. He was first active 69 through 1980 or so, and while he was in prison, uh, it was deemed too costly and complicated to have him on trial in both Colombia and Peru. So Peruvian authorities in august of nineteen ninety four deport him to Colombia, where he was found insane and held in a mental ward until nineteen ninety eight when he was released to the public. The last that we have heard of Pedro Alonso Lopez is in two thousand two when Interpol released an advisory for his arrest in on suspicion of another another homicide, and he has Again, primarily killed, uh, female children, also male. Um, as of 2015, the year we recorded this, Lopez would be 67 years old if he remains alive. And again, it sounds, this guy is a little bit unique because you can read purported, a purported interview with him, which I wasn't able to verify to the, I, my ideal standards, but right. it, it seems pretty, it It seems pretty legitimate and um it just, makes, just you
7: know i'm trying to i'm trying to verify that stuff as well right now and right. i i agree I can't verify it, but the way the way some of their, the things are written and then knowing what we already know about him, I would agree with you that right it's probably
8: him and the interviewer is real yeah obviously. absolutely uh but so here's the thing that this leaves us with he's sixty seven years old. He wouldn't, he most likely is not going to be in the best of shape. Not everyone is Sean Connery, right? So he, we, this would make us think that maybe he is too frail, right? We hope. We hope. Um, I would hope that he is dead, but part of the reason I hope that is remembering that his victims are children.
7: And that many that were confirmed, and then all the other ones, the hundreds that are
2: suspected.
8: Right, often poor, often street kids, often um, in rural areas, not part of mainstream society. That is right. So again, them.
2: it's yeah. like a population that's
8: sort of at the limits and uh, ignored. Right. That's sure. where we see this succeeding. So let's let's look at another case because that's that's the other thing, folks. Uh, if you haven't seen the video yet. There are numerous cases of uncaught serial killers. We just picked a few.
2: Yeah. Oh, so yeah. We're only talking about like four or five today. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when we were looking at the general research, there were at least just in a cursory search, like 20, yeah. 30 yeah. uncaught serial killers mm-hmm. that are yes. pretty widely known.
7: And the number of missing persons that perhaps aren't even attached yeah. to any known killer, are yeah. there, there are a crazy amount of people that go missing every year. Right.
2: Well, for the this next one, I again, I chose one from, you know, the neck of the woods that I grew up in, which is, uh, you know, I'm from Massachusetts. I, I went to school in New Hampshire. Uh, this is the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. Connecticut River Valley is uh, this border area between western New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh, and this killer basically stalked that area in the 1980s. And six women were killed uh stabbed mostly and their bodies were dumped in the woods near uh an area called the Sugar River. The time frame for this is much wider than uh in the previous case that I talked about. So that was one summer. This took place over 10 years uh from 1978 to 1988. Uh the first bodies actually turned up in 85, but they believe that he started in 78 based on, you know, like decomp uh decomposition. Uh, uh, and that uh, they found at least five of the women by 1987. So uh, the M.O. of this particular killer was that he would find isolated women. Again, I'm using he as sort of just a general gender term, not knowing who it is. Uh, But he would find these isolated women usually hitchhiking or alone at night. Uh, three of the victims were nurses, so they were traveling late-night schedules because of their shifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would stab them in the throat and then repeatedly stab them across their bodies and then took the bodies and dumped them into this particular area in the woods. Sometimes uh, he'd use like a black tarp to sort of like kind of try to hide the bodies a little bit. Okay, so there are uh, several victims leading up to August 6th of 1988 when a woman named Jane Baroski, who was pregnant at the time, Ooh. was at a convenience store late at night in the area. Um, the reason, uh, again, uh, I should have probably mention this earlier. One of the reasons why I'm referring to him as a him is because of this particular incident. She identified her attacker as male. Okay. Uh, he attacked her, stabbed her 23 to 27 times. God. Uh, and she basically did everything she could to just, you know, kind of protect Baby, mm-hmm. so um, to make sure that that area of her body wasn't wasn't hit, um, by playing dead, she was able to survive and basically um, crawl and then like I, I think walk to the nearest location where I think she knew somebody local and mm-hmm. and get help.
7: That's incredible,
2: uh, and I think she might have even driven with that many wounds, um, so. There's a couple things here that are that are interesting, right? So she survives. Uh, so we know that it's a, it's a male killer. Uh, we know a little bit about how he attacked her, mm-hmm. but um, he didn't take her body like the others, which is is curious to me because you know, like I said earlier, the MO was he stabbed them, then he would take them, bring them to the woods, dump them, but he left her there. So. If she was playing dead, was he going to come back later or something? Or maybe it was because of the pregnancy. Uh, yeah. Nobody knows. Yeah. Well, and how how could you ever prove that this is the same guy, right? Exactly. Right. And, there, in fact, there are four other cases that may be linked, but there's no proof connecting mm-hmm. them, right? Uh, so, again, there's some fascinating leads in this case, uh, but but nothing nailed down. No one has ever been apprehended for this. Okay. Uh, the first <clears throat> lead is a guy named Michael Nicolaou. And he was a Vietnam veteran uh, who actually, in 2005, killed his wife and his stepdaughter and then himself in West Tampa, Florida. Um, He had previously been linked to the case by a private investigator who had been looking for his ex-wife, a woman named Michelle Ashley. Uh, She basically, in 1988, she disappeared from the Holyoke, uh, Massachusetts area, which is kind of close to that uh, relatively speaking close to that Connecticut River Valley area. Okay. Uh, and so when this private investigator contacted him, he said, oh, well, I don't know where she is, uh, but she ran off with a drug dealer and left me to raise our two kids alone. Hmm. Whoa. So uh, his ex-wife's missing, right? Um, she looks into him, the private investigator, I mean, and she finds out that uh, while he was in the Vietnam War, uh, people who were in his platoon reported that he would go human hunting with a knife, uh, and he would go and basically kill civilians uh, during the war. Uh, and she believes that this is connected to this case because there was a milit- military-style association with the way that the victims' necks were cut. So with these stabbing oh. these knives, right? So that this was like, uh, again, like, so we were talking earlier about how when you're in a career that sort of uh, mm-hmm. puts you in a position in which you're coming into contact with uh, dead bodies, or in this case, you know, killing people. Right. Uh, that, you know, it provides the opportunity to sort of bring about this disorder, if that's what you want to call this, kind, this type of serial killing. Uh, so, So it's possible— you know, based on this private investigators theory that if Nicolau was the one who did it, that he kind of got into this during Vietnam and then brought it back with him to the States afterwards. Uh, the thing that is, is interesting to me is that, uh, if his MO was stabbing, Mm -hmm. remember that when he, you know, had his meltdown in 2005 and killed his family and himself, he did it by shooting them. So, uh, you know, who, who knows? Uh, but it's curious, uh, mm-hmm. you know, discrepancy there. Uh, however, uh, Jane Baroski, that woman I was talking about earlier, yeah, yeah. the one who was pregnant and survived, she identified him as the man who attacked her. Now, this wow. is much later, but she looked at, you know, photos of him in, after he ha- was was gone and right. said, yeah, that's the guy. So she oh, identified wow. it as Nicolau. That's pretty strong. But wait, it gets weirder. No. Uh, here's where it gets crazy. Go for it. Okay. Please. All right. <clears throat> a guy named Gary Westover is from the area, and uh, he had been paralyzed from a diving accident. And in 1997, he, at the time, thought he was dying. So he called upon his uncle, who was uh, a former sheriff's deputy in Grafton County, New Hampshire. Again, part of this area. Mm-hmm. On his
8: supposed deathbed.
2: Yeah, on his deathbed. Uh, and he tells his uncle... He says, uh, OK, a couple years previous to this, three of my friends picked me up and they wanted to go partying in a van. And I kind of joked about this with you guys because, right. uh, you know, being <laughs> living in New Hampshire for a long period of time, that's kind of a thing you do. Like, <laughs> like you just get into somebody's car or van and, you know, uh, get some get some drinks. Some booze. Some, some other things. Matties mm-hmm. and fatties was a, a <laughs> common term when I was uh, going to high school up there. So partying okay. a van is a thing people do. I mean, go somewhere in a van. It's not unusual. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't want listeners to think, like, oh, that's weird. Like <laughs> Just driving like,
7: around in a van with yeah,
2: booze. Kind of, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me tell you, I've I've done it. So, but I haven't done this next
7: part. Yeah, okay. Please, please I, don't w- I would
2: hope not. Uh, so, so Gary Westover says, OK, my friends pick me up. We get in this van. Uh, and then they abduct a woman and they killed her and dumped her body off on a back road. And he said, you know, he didn't participate, but that he was forced to be there. Uh, and again, remember, he's in a wheelchair. So uh, he basically said, look, I feel really bad about this. I, I want to tell the truth. I want you to know about this to his uncle. But uh he, he he had previously been scared to say anything because they said, Well look, you know, we can get you anytime. Uh, so if you say anything, we you know you're an easy target. And and uh the other thing that's kind of interesting about this is that private investigator who had looked into Nicola previously also speculated that it's possible that Gary Westover was used as bait. For one of these killings oh, and that because shoot. it was particularly snowy they were in the middle of a snowstorm when this van party was going on, they placed him in his wheelchair. This is her speculation. Mind you, there's no evidence for this, sure. but, uh, they placed him in his wheelchair on the side of the road so that when one of the women drove by, she pulled over to help him to find out what was wrong. And that's when they killed her. Good Lord. Yeah. It's calculated. So, uh, the private investigator comes into this again, though, because she says, well, it's possible that that Michael Nicolau guy was one of these three friends, uh, in that it's possible that he and Gary Westover knew each other because they were both veterans and they might have met through the local mm-hmm. Veterans Affair hospital. Uh, and so if that's true, and Gary Westover's story is true, and even if Nicolau was the killer then that means that there's two other guys out there that were accomplices or involved in these murders Mm -hmm. somehow. Uh, And reportedly, you know, police have access to the names. Of course, his uncle took this information forward Mm -hmm. and became part of the case. But, you know, no arrests have been made. As of our recording today.
8: Right. Wow. So before we get to some statistics we have one more case and we'll we'll walk through this one kind of quickly here. This is the Long Island Serial Killer, an unidentified assailant believed to have killed anywhere from 10 to 17 or more people over the course of 20 plus years around the Ocean Parkway area. Time frame here would be at least 1996 to 2009, 2013. So what kind of
7: victims are we talking about here? Well, it's kind of similar to a few of the other cases that mm-hmm. we've already looked at where these are primarily sex workers or at least believed to be sex workers mm-hmm. who were killed at some location, then put into, in this case, a burlap sack. And then dumped along the parkway and, uh, that's particularly at Gilgo Beach in this area. Yeah. So that is
2: so similar to the New Bedford Highway guy. And it's not it, that it's, far. No, it's not at all. Long yeah. Island is not, I mean, like maybe five hours at, at the most. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, I'm not saying that it's the same guy, but there's also sort of like the idea that, uh, this, this motive, this, this, uh, the MO mm-hmm. could have been spread through the media. You know, I mean, this, 96 was when these started, so this yeah. happened like just about, I don't know, 10 years after. And right. it continued until almost today. I mean,
7: it's close, right? In 2009, uh, 2013? Well, we don't know when it ended, too.
2: Well, yeah. That,
7: so the ones that we know of go that right. far.
8: The, yeah, and there were some anomalous things there as well. There was a man, of uh, the body of a man and a toddler discovered... So they went into profiling, which, as we know, can be a dangerous game at times. And don't get me wrong, profilers in real life are doing fantastic and vital work. Oh, yes. Um, but I, I think it's also – we we talk about this off-air, folks. Uh, every so often something comes out about quantum mechanics – and you can hear everybody roll roll their eyes. You can literally hear eyes rolling <laughs> in their sockets at our office because quantum mechanics it's one of the most misunderstood things I think of popular culture and profilers would be up in the top 10 what they actually do yeah, and yeah. and how they do
2: it. But here's Just a wh- lot of I think forensic work.
8: As oh yeah, well. yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Oh, no spoilers, but it's true. <laughs> uh so we have this uh we have this Look from a profiler with all those caveats. Uh, the authorities surmise that this killer is a male and is financially comfortable, obviously owns an auto to transport victims, and could have a job where he has access to burlap sacks, maybe a center or nursery. I think it's also possible that he could just be buying them. Uh The big thing is they believe he's familiar with police methods, possibly working in law enforcement or having friends, maybe family members who do. And they're also here's another thing. They're also certain that, well, fairly certain that he buried some of these bodies or stored them somewhere before he dumped them, meaning that it's possible. Adding on to your earlier statement about New Bedford, it's possible mm-hmm. that he is visiting the area seasonally mm. so yeah. it gives us some questions right could it be abducting his victims wait well, i see
2: a note here well, that says that these all these victims or sorry the first four victims disappeared between memorial day and labor day yes that's almost exactly the same as the new bedford situation oh wow, oh, wow. it was that very is. it was a it was a summer mm-hmm. spree well again, okay, i'm using the term spree wrong sure, or so. summer ser- serial killer so, well, you know, I, yeah.
7: I just want to say another yeah. thing that was interesting. A, a couple of the, a couple of the victims were prostitutes who were advertising on Craigslist, Ooh. who were advertising their services. Uh-huh. So again, that's someone who is perhaps not immediately in the area that could find right. someone who was in that location and meet up with them through the Craigslist meetup. I don't know. this is all that's a good point I mean it's
2: disturbing either way like Mm -hmm. you know it's fun to play armchair detective and, and try to find some kind of connections but it's also just disturbing in the fact that they're so similar and didn't happen all that far away from one another and both are still unsolved.
8: Yeah, and and didn't happen that far away from each other, really, in space or time. Yeah, so right the um and, and I think that's a very good catch about the um the timing of the murders. So we do have some leads. There's been a lot of speculation in the media about this identity of this killer. Um, the street name for this killer would be unsub, not what you do when you don't like a YouTube channel but as a as a portmanteau for unknown subject. And they believe again he's most likely a male, specifically a white male. I don't know how they knew that part, uh, in his twenties to forties, clearly familiar with the South Shore of Long Island. But um, there's an interesting case by uh, a, or an interesting article rather by a fellow named Dr. Scott Bond, writing for Psychology Today, Bond said he believes the killer may have relocated or become dormant, uh, and we'll talk about dormancy in a second, but he does believe the killer resided in New York City at one point because there was a series of phone calls that the killer made. He made, after he abducted and murdered um, a woman named Melissa Bartholomew, uh, he made seven phone calls using her phone over a six-week period in 09 to the sister, Melissa's sister, and these were taunting her, saying horrible things about the victim, and the phone calls could be traced to roughly the Manhattan
7: area. That's so close. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those things that if you're in the law enforcement looking to find this guy, you're like, oh my gosh, we almost got him.
2: And yeah, and again, sorry, this sounds yeah. like something like that you would see on like a TV show, like The Following or something like yeah, that, right? Exactly. But this is this is real. Like that, this guy killed a woman's sister, and then called her repeatedly from her own phone. Mm -hmm. It's haunting.
8: So, yeah, and these are just four examples of the uh, Long Island serial killer is currently one of the I guess most recent, right? But Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that any of these perpetrators fit the same profile. That doesn't mean that any of them are necessarily uh, deceased, so if you if you look at look at what the FBI says about it, they will say that serial killers are among us, there is no set profile. there's an interesting thing that we've talked about off air, I believe, which was the highway serial killing initiative. Mm-hmm. The FBI started to map this out, and one thing we talked about in Highway of Tears was that these sorts of murders of again people on the fringes of society, right. Prostitutes, drug addicts, hitchhikers—these people are um, these people are prey. And uh, when when the FBI started mapping this, they found more than five hundred cases it, that they could add to their database, and they started to wonder if there were truckers that were using the opportunity again to the excellent point you made earlier to become serial murderers. And furthermore, if these criminals were hunting in packs, essentially.
2: Well, I mean, that goes back to the, the what was it, Gary Westover right. uh, yeah. claim about that four, well, you know, he said that he wasn't actively taking part in it, but three guys were basically in a driving around in a van together in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. stalking a, women. Right. And it, it's true that... Uh, Okay. Which is contrary, I'd like to just say, yeah. it's very contrary to our popularized idea of serial killers. Right, too, right alone, that they're, yes. Yeah, exactly.
8: Right, and there's a um, there's a conservative estimate that comes from a fellow named John Douglas, a former chief of the FBI's elite serial crime unit and the author of a book called Mindhunter. Uh, he says that there, at his conservative estimate, there are between 35 and 50 active serial killers in the U.S. at any given time. And the, because they have no profile, because they could be the person you walk past on your way from the gas pump to the cashier, because they could be one of the six people with you in an elevator, because of this. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. That's horrifying. Well, it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's a little alarmist, too, because if we consider that there are, what, around 330 million people in the U.S.?
7: And then, yeah, right. maybe 60 to 35 of those.
2: Yeah, it's a very small percent.
8: But he also said it was a conservative estimate. And it makes me think, this is entirely supposition, but it makes me think if these stereotypes about serial killers are impeding apprehending them, because I'm sure, even now, in living in a surveillance state, I'm sure it would be quite possible for someone to be, you know, a normal, average person. And every two years, they take a two-week vacation Somewhere they've never been because they like to see the sights. Then a homeless person goes missing that over that same stretch.
2: And then they never go to, you know, Aruba or Vegas again. So this is a thing that we often run into here at How Stuff Works on Mm -hmm. all of the shows, really. Mm -hmm. Is uh, I find that the various things that we research here, I end up with this perspective of, well, from, our current vantage point here in 2015, we can look back on such and such discovery and mm-hmm. go, Oh, isn't it so silly that they didn't understand right. this disease or this mm-hmm. biological factor a hundred years ago or whatever? I really feel like the more we look into this, that mm. serial killer psychology is something that we don't quite understand that well right now, and that in you know in the future people are going to look back and say, "Wow, they're really in the dark about this," and then just making lots of TV shows and movies kind of celebrating it.
8: Yeah, I, I, I as agree. if they
2: understood it. There's this glorification
8: mm. yeah. in some ways. That's that. And don't get me
2: wrong, part. that's some of my favorite stuff. I mean, like I said earlier, like I'm a huge fan of the Hannibal TV show. Mm. Uh, you guys know I love. Old TV show millennium with uh, Lance Henriksen. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's another like serial killer profiler show. But uh I mean, it's just bizarre when you think about it, how we sort of approach this thing. I guess it's sort of like our attempt as a culture to understand it and feel safe with it by, like, binding it to a story. Mm -hmm. Well,
7: yeah, and it's also – it gives you a tremendous feeling of relief when the bad guy in one of those gets caught. Yeah, right. Or almost gets caught or Mm -hmm. just – you know, I, w- I was watching the following. Yeah. And just yeah. all the times we're like, all oh, right. Well, that was nice resolution. Oh no, he's back. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah.
8: One thing that I, I want to bring out to the audience and to everyone else before, before we get toward the end of the show is this. I almost said the following, but that would be a poor choice of words. Uh, is, is this, uh, we know that we live in a world of predictive data, right? Big data. And it is possible now to gain an increasingly sophisticated uh, prognostication, really, of an individual's future actions based on what they're doing. Would it be possible... I mean, I know I'm proposing this idea pre-crime, essentially.
2: Yeah, you're talking about Minority Report.
8: I'm talking about something like Minority Report. That's kind of
2: already happening
7: now. It's just what you're going to buy in the next 6 to 12 months. As I've found out after having a baby. Really? What happened? Just depending on what goes on your credit cards, depending on what I happen to purchase at, let's say, Kroger, Uh if I end up using my Kroger Plus card, what happens. Um, it tracks all of sure. the information of what I'm buying, and then it sends that Coupons. information to everybody else. Yeah. Kroger sells that information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on my television, right before I canceled cable, uh, every ad – Every ad was diapers, or you know something like depression medication. I'm not kidding you. It was it was happening already. It was trying to understand what my life was like. Depression medication. Well, yeah, wow. because uh, that's why
2: Hulu keeps telling me to go to the gym.
7: <laughs> I'm completely serious, though. It 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 really is trying to target me. Oh sure, yeah. as it does everyone else. And when I say it, I mean. The, Big data, essentially. Sure. Well, um, all
2: right, I got a, I got a short story that I got to tell you guys because this is perfect for your audience. And mm-hmm. this is anecdotal, and mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to name this person. I have a friend who has a Ph.D. in computer science and has done freelance work for the DOD before. Uh, and one of the projects that he was assigned to was predictive data, uh, basically uh, trying to map out the probabilities of government employees uh, breaking the rules. Are you allowed to tell us this? Based on uh, – he's not allowed to tell you this. I'm allowed to tell okay. you. <laughs> uh, ba- basically the idea being that, you know, based on uh, their actions within the network and, and how they're using, you know, the, the computer system. Are they going to go Snowden? Yeah. Yeah, wow. essentially.
8: I could see that, I mean, I could see that being a necessary thing from their perspective.
2: Oh, sure. I understand yeah. it completely. Um, but it's possible.
8: Yeah, it is possible. And often, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get a lot of letters from people were saying that often the idea of security is falsely, you know, is, is marketed in an alarmist fashion to get people to sacrifice privacy. And I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. Um, but then, that leads us to a philosophical quandary, which is directly, do we let 50 people go around killing people on the interstate yeah. because we don't want targeted advertising? I know, I know, I'm, yeah, I'm, clearly I'm swaying it in that way. <laughs> this is not, this is not the way that I necessarily believe it. I'm just, I'm for playing devil's advocate sure. At sure. At that yeah.
2: question. Uh, bringing it back to Al Pacino.
8: And bringing it back to Al Pacino, we we're talking off air about, you can t- probably tell Christian and I are both under the weather, and we yeah. were thinking, man, our voices are going to be awesome in this show. Kevin.
3: A new season of Bridgerton is here.
0: Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: I used to have so many men.
4: How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications.
6: She had a Harvard plaque
4: employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry.
9: She would probably have sex with one of her clients.
3: Hide your money in your old rich man, <laughs> because she is on the prowl.
4: Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: Wait, speaking of speaking of awesome, you guys hear that music? Do you here? Is that just me? Am I having a stroke?
1: You know, I kind of felt like I was having a stroke the other day. I got a uh, a cavity filled for the very first time, and the whole half of my face was numb, and it was a very strange sensation.
8: We made it through the fire. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a moment <laughs> with our super producer, uh, Noel Brown. Noel, I'm not choosing a nickname for this episode because it feels... You guys went a little dark with it. It got a little dark. Mm-hmm. Got a little dark.
1: Uh, yeah. So what's on your mind? What do you think? Yeah, I don't need those kind of nicknames, Ben. I just don't need them. What's on my mind? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> got a little, I've still got this little chest cold thing. Everyone's All of under us the too, weather. Huh? It's this crazy seasonal change. I always seem to get hit with something around this time. Except for Matt. Yeah,
2: I know. I haven't gotten yeah, it yet. The guy with the baby is the only one who's mm. healthy. Maybe there's an immune system thing that happens. Just wait till he starts school.
7: Oh, yes, and then exposed to all the other elements, oh, yeah. the children's yeah, elements. bad. You're it's sending badness. your kid to school? You know, you monster. I was thinking about it, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Okay, really fast. Noel, mm-hmm. you, uh, you don't have to get into this. You don't want to, but I'm really curious. Homeschooling? Is that a thing? Ben, guys, should were you at all, and should we?
1: Yes, it's definitely a thing.
2: Yeah, I was not, and yeah. I'm the wrong person to ask because I don't have kids and probably yeah. won't. But uh, oh, look at
1: you, though. You're so well-adjusted. Aw, thanks.
2: Know. It's just because I went through the
1: fire. Exactly. <laughs> that's the way I feel, too. Fire. Okay. So I'll give you my perspective just briefly. My daughter is six years old. She went to Montessori school from like pre-K age to just now. And she loved it. It was great. I really feel, you know, if anyone doesn't know Montessori is sort of like a, um, all kids of different age groups are all in the same classroom together. And so there's this kind of like leadership involved where like the older kids sort of take the lead and set an example for the younger kids. And it's a great way to socialize kids and make them comfortable around in different situations and around different age groups of kids. Loved it. Worked great. Feel like it outlived its usefulness. I feel like first grade, she needs to be in public school. With the rest of the, in the fray, you know? Yeah. No more soft-pedaling everything, and, you know? I think it's time to throw her into the fire. And she's doing great. She loves it. She loves it.
7: So this year she's starting? This year, first Okay. Year. First well, year. You, you're going to have to keep me updated with that. So here's the deal, guys. This is what was going on in my world while I was at home editing the video yeah. that's coming out this week. Yeah. And the one that came out last week
2: about serial killers. So you've got, but see, that's, <laughs> it puts a nice bow on it though. I try, I try to look at that stuff in a positive way, you know? Yeah. Like, my yeah.
7: positive way was how do I make this kid not a serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> like hundred oh. percent, you're going to make this kid
2: the opposite.
1: I mean, it's like a mix of nature and nurture, right? right. Is that sort of what you guys, the takeaway is yeah. from a lot of this talk? Sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I usually think that based on the, the research Absolutely. for all of these things. Yeah.
1: yeah. It, Just don't, don't lock your kid in the basement. Okay, good. Don't Don't have one of those
8: yet. It's, uh, it is theoretically possible, not plausible nor ethical or humane, but it is possible to, uh, breed someone who would be genetically predisposed to some sort of serial murdering. But the good news for you is I believe that ship has sailed. Perhaps. Kids already out. You
2: to just stay away from them. I would imagine that would require a pretty significant amount of effort. I mean, I've never met Matt's parents. Does he have parents? We don't know where Matt came from.
1: Wait a minute. I met you. Did, didn't your pops come in here one day?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. That was my dad. Uh-huh. Are you <laughs> sure nice. that wasn't a Nazi replicant vampire? No, oh, no. nice. Good <laughs> he had call, real back. Good hair. Uh, <laughs> good hair. So,
8: um, So I I guess to answer your question, I am uh I I guess I would I'm partially homeschooled like every only child is, because I hung out with myself a lot. Like
7: early?
1: Uh mm, you know okay never mind
7: yeah, never mind Damon
1: schooled by he-man vhs tapes oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. yeah. at least it
2: wasn't the masters of the universe power, movie as far as i was concerned
1: Ooh. yeah i would have the power nice. it, it, it taught me to believe in myself and <laughs> yeah. to be a
2: team player because i didn't have any brothers or sisters either
8: and talked you out was of that like one
2: of orca's little yeah. lessons at the Master end of player. every episode Master yeah <laughs>
8: And talked you out of, uh, or talked you off the ledge of becoming a homicidal maniac, right? Like Skeletor. Yeah. Well,
1: he was the least appealing character in the show. He had. Are this, you like, little boy. me? No, he's he's fun, but he Hold didn't on. want to be Skeletor. Did you
8: you know identified know? with Skeletor? No, no. Well, okay. Certain aspects of it I get, sure. <laughs> like Cobra Commander. You can understand, you know, kind of where they're coming from, um, but I overall I don't agree with their approach, and I never really understood. <laughs> the mythology of He-Man. I saw the live-action film again recently. Well, so if anything, just hit Netflix. I shouldn't have done yeah, that. I yeah. just didn't under—I didn't understand it, and um, <laughs> I didn't understand how something about it not being a cartoon and for grown—I'll say it. You beat me if you have to, Noel, but for a grown-ass Dolph Lundgren to be walking around calling himself He-Man and have other people call him He-Man. I mean, I have a, I have a, I love nicknames. Don't get me wrong, but if I meet somebody who is our age and says like, they call me, you know, Spin Daddy.
2: Sorry, (laughs) sorry, Derek. So, how did this get made? The the comedy podcast that looks at movies actually just did an episode on Masterpiece. Oh, great podcast! uh, And they they talk about this and they they kind of reveal. Uh, the I, I believe there's one of those like uh, behind the scenes blog posts was it like the, the secrets behind Masters of the universe mm-hmm. talking about how Dolph Lundgren got involved in the movie Wow yeah. it
1: makes me think when you think of the name he man like mm-hmm. it just what could be a more absurd masculine name you know and I'll tell you what could be there's yeah. but it works because it's a band called man Man. <laughs> And that to me, that's one upset, but in a great way, because they're this kind of weirdo Tom Waitsy kind of like uh you know psychedelic <laughs> wow. pirate kind of rock band. Is it man is it hyphenated? Man. I think it's one. I think it's one. Uh, man, rock, man, 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 man.
8: There probably is someone somewhere in the world because there are billions of people here, and their name probably is Man, Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it probably doesn't mean the same thing it does to us in English. Probably not. Uh, but. Um, How did we get here, guys? How did we get here?
2: Well, you know what? <laughs> After you talk about Uncaught Serial Killers for an hour. Gotta, gotta we got to have get, a little bit of yeah, ear like bleach. It, yeah. Talk about He-Man.
8: Well, guys, we are going to head out. We know this episode went uh, a little bit longer, but that's one of the main complaints we get is that people want longer episodes. So uh, we hope that – I don't know if enjoy is the right word to use for this, uh, but we hope that this sheds some light on some of the – misapprehensions people have and we want to thank uh christian sager for uh coming in again if you like this episode you'll also like the comics code episode we did earlier yeah that was Mm -hmm. a fun
2: one uh and you can also find me on stuff to blow your mind uh where i podcast with our colleagues robert and joe about all things weird and sciencey uh i guess the one i would recommend the most the Sort of, if you if you liked what we talked about here, is that uh, science of necrophilia episode that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, but
7: don't discount; there are a lot of episodes that you guys have done, especially oh. recently,
2: since the three of
7: you have been mm-hmm. podcasting. Yeah. That are right, I think, in our listeners' alley. Oh, uh,
2: yeah, yeah. Especially um, all of October, we've been doing uh, not Halloween themed, but sort of October themed uh, topics. So, mm-hmm. for instance, like those guys tackled uh, natural burials. And uh, Robert and I took a look at the psychology of uh, final girls in slasher movies. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've done some interesting stuff like that. Yeah, your audience would certainly be interested, I I, I hope.
8: Oh, yeah, check it out. If you like stuff they want you to know, you'll love stuff to blow your mind. Oh, wait, before we go, there's one more big announcement, which is this was our last moment with Noel.
1: Oh, Uh, It's okay, guys. It's terrible. I knew it was short lived. You know, it was it was nice while it lasted.
7: Right. Wait. There's more. (laughs) Yes, but wait.
8: There's more. Uh, The reason it's our last moment with Nolan this episode is because from now on, this is going to be a three person show. So when three person plus. Three person plus, because when you when you tune in uh, from every week and we hope you do, uh, you're going to be hearing Noel and Matt and I and perhaps some uh, special guests. If I can. Or, I mean, I already have uh, exhausted my my
2: podcast karma, maybe cajoling <laughs> you into this. But. I'm sure I'll come back at some point. Uh, there's plenty of more uncaught serial killers for us to discuss. Right. And uh, hopefully there's, something there's more, more pleasant. Success. Yeah. Let's come up with a. a <laughs> Happier conspiracy theory. Okay. And oh, we've we've been talking about yeah. doing something about the invisibles. That would be a fun one. Ah, yes. That's something Done.
8: a lot of people want to know about the Berenstain Bears and the Mandela effect. Uh,
7: so we'd like to pass this question to you. And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode,
5: it gives me a lot of
6: hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9.
5: Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast.
6: Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
3: Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene, was good